We need you. We need you in every way. Thank you that you receive a needy people. Thank you that you have made a way even for a sinful and a rebellious people. Thank you, our gracious God, that your mercy is much greater than our sin. Your grace goes deeper than our rebellion. And your love and your power and your spirit do a transforming work in us. So now, Lord, our hope is not here anymore. Our hope is in you. Lord, to that end, would you speak this morning? Would you feed and nourish that eternal hope we have in you so that we will look back not with regrets but with thanks? To that end, Lord, reveal yourself to us today. Speak to us and help us. In spite of me, do your good work. This is what we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Last words are an interesting phenomenon, aren't they? What somebody says um, that they can't take back uh, or that, especially if they know it could be the end, they view as the sum total of what they might want remembered or maybe just what is most on their mind as they come to the very end of their life here on earth. Always instructive, although it's not always a perfect, you know, it's not a Hollywood ending like, oh, I said just the right thing. I'm always afraid I'm going to be saying something really silly as my last words. Uh, and if it happens, I hope you'll laugh and know um, Frank is not great, but his Savior is, and I'm okay with that. Winston Churchill, the English statesman, at one point in his life, he wrote in his autobiography and said, I could have prevented the war. Uh, is that an amazing statement or what? I don't know enough about Churchill. Maybe you guys will know why he made that statement. Anyway, that background is context. Apparently on his deathbed, he said these words, what a fool I have been. Shocking words for a man who was so well respected, such a hero to so many. Uh, William Maugham, a British author, died in 1965. Uh, well, his last words don't really need any comment. Dying is a very dull and dreary affair, and my advice to you is to have nothing whatever to do with it. James Rogers, a man who was committed of murder, and this will date uh, that event for you, um, he was sentenced to die by firing squad. His, uh, his final words when asked if he had any last requests, why yes, a bulletproof vest. General John Sedgwick, a Union commander um, in the American Civil War, he was shot at the Battle of Spotsylvania Courthouse in 1864. Again, a number, another, uh, uh, another uh, time-setting uh, uh, name, right? Spotsylvania. We need to name more places that. Um, he his last words happened just after. Uh, he was looking over a parapet at the enemy lines. So you can imagine what that means. These are his last words. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. Yes, humorous. Morbidly so, I will grant you. But there is a reality that we will utter last words last words before death, unless Christ comes and takes us while we still live. And sometimes we sense that eternity is upon us more so than at other times, as in the song that we just sang, that the space between wears thin. And sometimes we get a perspective that we are standing within the moments of eternity even now, and we get a perspective that for most of us happens most likely only when we know we're very near the end. It's good for us as believers, I have heard it said more than once, to think often of death because it reminds us that this world is not all there is. Now, don't worry, our message this morning is not about death, but it is about the eternal perspective that so often attends the consideration of it. John Piper, in addition to being a pastor and an author and a speaker, uh, is also a poet. Well, at least he wrote poems. 
I don't know what you have to do to go from writing poems to being a poet. I've written a few poems. I'm not a poet. John Piper is, uh, I guess, a poet. In one of the poems he writes, he describes the life of a faithful follower of Christ, seeking God in his word, seeing uh, eternal things in his marriage, in his parenting, in his children, in those around him, um, suffering with an eternal perspective. Anyway, his poem ends with this brief stanza, and it also connects to uh, our statement about last words. Speaking of this faithful follower, this is what Piper's poem says, see him nearing death, listen to his breath through the ebbing pain. <laughs> Final whisper, gain. The inspiration for that last stanza comes from the passage that we come to today in Philippians chapter 1, which John Piper wrote as a last words kind of a statement. Philippians chapter 1 is Paul's great manifesto about whether he lives or dies, he will live for Christ and he will magnify Christ. Pick up with me in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Actually, technically, the paragraph begins in the middle of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, Paul says. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Pause there. This morning I want to talk about the focus that Paul has, that has been his focus, not just because of the possibility of nearing death, but has been the focus of his life throughout the course of his time since he's become a follower of Christ. First, I want to note Christ, the believer's steadying focus. Notice Paul's focus, and I'm going to call it the believer's steadying focus here. Throughout the book of Philippians, Paul uses these phrases I've mentioned before, in Christ, with Christ, through Christ, toward Christ, for the sake of Christ. So this is his focus of his life, and, and he wants it to be evidently so in this little letter. So I've added that in, though it's not in so many words in this passage, it is from the book. The believer's steadying focus is what Christ is, and here is Paul now in prison. Here is Paul now wrongly condemned and accused and chained to a Roman soldier and those on the outside, even some who would be his friends, betraying him for the very purpose of making his life harder. And yet in all of it, he has a focus that has steadied him. A right focus will steady you and me. Verse, verse 20, notice what he says, and this is where I'm getting the idea of steadying. This that he is focusing on, he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope. Hope that he speaks of here, what is steadying him here in this case. This isn't uh, exactly the way that hope, as he says it here, is used so often in else other places in Scripture. This is not the blessed hope. This is not the eternal hope. This is not the hope of glory. When Scripture speaks of hope in those terms for a believer, it's talking about something that is certain. It is something that God does. It's something that if you know Christ and the Spirit has come to live in you, you can't mess up. Praise God for that. And it is itself steadying for the believer. The blessed hope, the eternal hope, the hope of glory. It is itself peace for us in times of turmoil and difficult circumstances. But that's not exactly his hope here. Instead, here, he uses hope in the way that we more usually use it in the English, a, a non-biblical way. It's just an optimistic expectation. It's a target, or it's what I've called a focus. 
I want you to notice more than this, the other words that are there in the NAS, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation. Those two words in the English are actually one in the Greek. It's one long compound word, and it has the idea of a very strong fixed attention, a focus that is your face turned toward it and not turning your face away. Earnest expectation is what my NAS has. It is a focus that is steadied and fixed because it's a conscious choice. He chooses while he is in prison, not knowing what tomorrow will hold, to fix on Christ. Sounds like Romans 12, sounds like Hebrews 12, fixing our hope on uh, Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, right? That's what we're talking about here. Though there are many things that might be for him a distraction, Paul has made a choice, and it is his earnest expectation related to that focus, which is on Christ, that steadies him. So let's look at Paul's expectation here. What we need to do is uh, chew on a word that uh, is actually, well, we just need to think about for a bit. There in verse 19, it's the word deliverance, if you're reading the NAS. Uh, if you're in the ESV or another, you might actually have the word salvation. Again, yes, and I will rejoice, 19, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or for my salvation through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. First question, what is Paul's deliverance? What is he talking about here? Because there are a couple of options, and even the translators of our Bibles have come to different conclusions on that. It's the word soteria, which is the Greek word for salvation, and usually it's the word for eternal salvation. It is, it is being saved, brought from, from death to life, from hell to heaven. Or in its final sense, it is salvation being glorified and standing with Christ. But what is it here? Well, it could be that he is using that, that word in that sense. His eternal deliverance, which would be his salvation from sin and judgment. But it could also be, and the word itself is used in this way in other places even in Scripture, just a deliverance or a salvation from his circumstances. And what are those? It could be that he's just delivered from prison. He's brought out from this hardship that he's in. But it could also be something else, and this is where I think I would land based upon this whole passage. I give you all three because all three are legitimate possibilities. All three lead to good application, but I think the emphasis of the whole passage is this, and this is what I think the understanding is. What is his deliverance? I think what it is is it is his ability to stay faithful within the midst of his circumstance, to be, if you will, delivered above them, to be delivered through them, not swallowed up by them, not swamped, not drowned in them. I think you'll see my reasons for that as we go uh, for, further, and I'm not going to give a million reasons. There's more we could chat about, but, um, but we'll just see what the passage says for itself, and you'll see why I think that's clearly the emphasis, emphasis regardless. Here it's his deliverance from shame, because he's going to speak about boldness. It's his deliverance from Fear, because we know he's setting them up for words he's going to say in about three more verses, telling these believers in Philippi to not be alarmed, to not respond in fear when they face the same suffering. So here he is modeling it himself, saying, see how I focus and how it steadies me, and I am confident I will be delivered. I will be able to be faithful. That's the deliverance, the successful walking through it. And so he tells them the same. That's how I take this deliverance. So regardless of where you land on that, here's what we can be certain of as those three deliverances can be talked about. Paul is absolutely certain of his deliverance from sin and judgment. He's certain of his full salvation. And I think in our passage today, we find he's also rather optimistic about his deliverance from prison. He seems to have a sense, I only say seems because there is some question, but he seems to have a sense that he believes he's going to not die in this particular prison, not this go-round, and that he will be released. 
But I think the point of this passage is that his hope, his focus on Christ and what he's expecting it will deliver is faithfulness through this trial, boldness within this trial. His focus is on Christ, and it will be in Christ that he will be delivered even as he suffers, whether he lives or dies, whether they release him or not. And he seems to say those things on a couple of occasions, one of the reasons why I land here. He expects that his focus on Christ, being in Christ and with Christ and through Christ, will steady him and he will be bold. And when he looks back, he won't be ashamed whether he lives or dies. Whether he is released from his circumstance or whether his remaining days he lives under it. And friends, that's one of our great encouragements too, right? Whatever circumstances may cause duress for you today. We can say, Lord, would you deliver me through Christ, in Christ, with Christ, so that through these circumstances I'm faithful? Whether they change or they don't, so that through these circumstances I'm not ashamed, whether they change or they don't, so that in this season of my life I look back without regret. In fact, I look back and see there's greater boldness. Paul focusing on Christ is saying this will turn out for that kind of a deliverance for me. And I believe that is our point of contact and our application. Paul's focus on Christ is his steady anchor. His focus on Christ is his prayer and his confidence and his help. The question for me and for you, what is your steady anchor today? Oh, I know you know the Sunday school answer. You, you know what should be the right answer. But only my attitude over the last week will show whether or not it has been. Only my choices, my, my fears, or my joys will demonstrate what has been my anchor. What has been your struggle this week, and has he been your steady anchor amidst it? Well, first we have to ask, what is Paul's deliverance? And I think this is the deliverance he's He's talking of second, what will it take to bring about the deliverance? Well, it's there in verse 19. He mentions two things that are going to bring about his deliverance. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is one of the reasons that I don't think that it's his salvation that's in view. Because I don't think Paul would say, I am confident that I'm going to go to heaven because you all pray for me, right? That's not a good soteriology as far as the Bible speaks of our understanding of salvation. But he is saying, he is saying, if you will pray, God will answer. Something will change. And what is it that Paul wants to change? I might live or I might die. I might get out or I might rot in this cell but what I pray will be changed. What I am asking you to pray for is that I will be faithful, that I will be bold, that in that way I will be delivered above and through and beyond my circumstances through an eternal perspective so that whatever happens, God himself is delivering me. It will take the prayers of God's people we must always be in prayer. And we talked about prayer a couple of weeks ago earlier in Philippians 1, as we do tend to do every January, setting aside a Sunday, focus on that discipline of prayer. We talked about how prayer is sort of like breathing. As a follower of Christ, you just can't go very long without it. It's like the body can't go very long without oxygen because we were designed for relationship. And we may not keel over because it's, you know, been a week since I've talked to God, but I may keel over spiritually pretty quickly, right? Because I'm not just in, in commune with the one who alone feeds and nourishes my soul. And so we're talking here not just about seasons of prayer, but just talking with the Lord throughout the course of the day. We must always be in prayer. But here, particularly, Paul's focus is on their prayers. I know my deliverance 
will come about through, through your prayers for me. Their prayers will be used by God for Paul's good. Is God sovereign? Absolutely. Is his will always done? Yes, the decree, God's decorative will, is always done. No one can thwart it. But you know what? In an amazing mystery of Scripture, God moves in response to our prayers. God has ordained to use the intercession of his people to bring about his purpose. Theologically speaking, we call prayer a means when it comes to the will of God. He uses it because he chooses to, but oh, praise God that he does. And he has ordained to use it. It's just a mystery that's clearly taught in Scripture. So here are these Philippians hearing Paul's joy. And they're not to walk away and go, I was worried about Paul, but now they came back and he, and, and he wrote us a letter, and I guess he's okay, good. Now I can go worry about what else I need to do this week. Paul says, no, if I'm going to be delivered, it's going to be through your prayers. That is a powerful statement, isn't it, of our need to intercede for one another. As the Lord leads, I'm not here to heap up guilt. I'm here to encourage by saying when we pray, heaven listens. The eternal God bends his ear because he chooses to respond. What a condescension of a holy and eternal God. First, your prayers. The other thing that it will take to bring about his deliverance will be the supply of the spirits. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit's provision or supply. And if we've been reading Paul for any length of time, we go, yeah, duh. Because you can't do nothing spiritually without the Spirit of God. Love here that the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That's noteworthy, isn't it? Uh, in Scripture, sometimes uh, it is, we are told that the Father sends the Spirit. In other places, we are told that the Son sends the Spirit. Um, the working of the Trinity, three individual persons in one Godhead. And yet their interaction is mysterious and glorious and beautiful. But I love that Paul here, because of his focus so much on Jesus, mentions it'll be the spirit of Jesus. Jesus himself, who is my focus, he will send the spirit. And that spirit will supply me with what I need. The spirit is our constant supply and our constant provision. And if we are going to be delivered in whatever circumstance God has ordained for us to struggle with this week, it will be because of the Spirit's supply, right? You know what? Why don't you guys grab your bulletins really fast? Just pull out your bulletin, flip over to the back. If you got that somewhere, you're like, what, well, honey, where'd we put that? And uh, flip over to the back, and uh, you'll see our vision statement there. Lives transform the glory of God. And if you've come to Mountain Christian any period of time, you've heard that phrase in different forms multiple, multiple times. And it goes on to talk about how we see God using us and changing others, and changing us. And the changing of others gives him glory, and the changing of us uh, also gives him glory. And then it says that there are uh, three intentional pursuits that we have in order to try and be more a part of this transformation and more to his glory. There are three. What is the first one? You can say it out loud. Dependence is the first one, I believe, right? Dependence, discipleship, and witness. We pursue those things intentionally. Great. Okay, you can put it away now. How do we pursue dependence? Answer, prayer, and the Holy Spirit. Nothing of eternal value will ever happen through Mountain Christian Church apart from prayer and dependence on the Holy Spirit. Nothing of, of lasting impact will ever happen in your life apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and dependence and prayer. Dependence is that without which there will not be glory to God, and there will not be change and transformation. There will not be eternal work. There will be nothing that is lasting. Jesus, in the, his high priestly prayer, I think it is, speaks to his Father and says, and Lord, may they bear fruit and fruit that lasts. That's what we want, right? And if we have a perspective of eternity, 
if in nearing death we are drawing close to the reality of entering into eternity, we will suddenly care a great deal, if we haven't before then, about what's going to last, right? My fame, my name, uh, my praise. We can be tricked into thinking that those are worth living for. But the reality is, after about one generation, there are probably single digits of people who even know anything about you or care that you lived. I mean, hopefully not. That was a downer, but it's true. But eternally speaking, there's fruit that lasts. What will it take to bring about this deliverance so Paul might live in such a way that there is fruit that lasts? It will take the prayers of himself and others and the working of the Spirit. Third and finally, let's just ask this about deliverance. What will be the outcome of the deliverance? What will be its outcome in verse Well, it's going to be in 20, but I'll back up again and read the whole thing, starting 19. I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Holy Spirit. He supplies everything we need according to his riches and glory. And 20, this will happen according to my earnest expectation and hope because Paul's focus is on Christ. And what will it bring about? That I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The outcome of this deliverance is that Paul will have shame in nothing. In fact, I like the literal Greek rendering here. Mine in the English says that I will not be put to shame in anything. That's fine, but here's how it says it in the Greek, that I will be put to shame in nothing. I just like that statement. I will be put to shame in nothing, Paul says. That's the outcome of his deliverance. That is what, by focus on Christ, he is asking God to do and depending upon the Spirit for. Isn't it amazing what we think is the right thing to do in the midst of a hard situation, under duress? I mean, we don't reason it out this way, but our thinking really is this, if someone could x-ray our motives. I think right now, for me, to scream, be intimidating, and win this argument is totally the right thing to do. Only to find later... I'm ashamed because that was not the right thing to do at all. Here Paul says, I will be put to shame in nothing. Right now, under this duress, with this pressure, and, and with these potential um, uh, ramifications, I, I think it's best for me to stay quiet, keep my head down, fly low, say nothing. There is a time for that, but we may also look back and say, I'm ashamed. Paul says, I would that I be ashamed in nothing. And then he puts an exclamation to it, but that with all boldness. What he is trusting the Spirit to do is to deliver him to boldness. And you know what's crazy? This is his desire and his earnest hope while he's chained to a Roman guard. Which, by the way, ironically, he is chained to because he's been condemned of what? Being too bold for Christ. So while I'm here in prison, I just want to continue to commit the crime that got me here in the first place. That is Paul's boldness. Because if they want to let me rot in here for that, so be it. I'll never be ashamed of that. If they want to take me out and kill me for that, so be it. Because I'll never be ashamed of that. Would that the Lord would grant me such boldness. For I'm far too easily persuaded to not be bold when the opportunities come. Would that our focus was so on Christ that our earnest expectation and hope was that come what may, we would be bold. And the outcome of that, lastly, is that Christ will even now, as always, he says, end of 20. Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. The word there is Christ will be magnified, uh, megalunthesitai. I just throw out some Greek there because you go, ooh, I caught the beginning of that word, megalunthesitai. Christ will be magnified. He'll be made huge. He'll get big. In, in people's understanding and perception of the reality of who he is. 
That's what Paul says. That's what he expects. And that is his, I would argue, deliverance. Yes, he knows he will be delivered in salvation. He is even somewhat optimistic that he will be delivered by getting out and not die, at least not in this uh, prison go-round. But his real deliverance, I think, is this. Christ be magnified. Are you unsteady this week, wavering, fearful of something? I, I this week, have been... Uh, fearful of a particular scenario, I'll just tell you right up, that literally, I, and I've done this uh, a number of times in my life, um, and praise God just for the consciousness to know that I'm chicken and needy. I, I literally, I don't know how many times this week, I think every time, but, but many times, every time I open my email, I stop and pray first. That's okay. <laughs> That's not a bad place to be with the Lord, right? Are you unsteady? Yes. Fearful? Yes. Wavering? Yes. The right focus will steady you through prayer and dependence so that you are delivered to faithfulness, so that you are delivered to walk in the Spirit, so that you can look back and say, I have no shame. That's what the Lord desires for you, believer, today. And notice Paul's consistency. As always, even now, he says, that has always been my desire. Christ be magnified in my body, whether by life or death, is easier to say when you're standing there singing with the brothers and sisters, but harder when they threaten you and beat you and throw you in prison. Just as always, even now, he says. By life or by death, he says. My death is not the failure and the living success. My staying imprisoned, the failure and the getting out success. No, Christ magnified is the success. And then he goes on to display to explain why this focus on Christ leaves him with no fear, no shame, and no regrets. Let's look at the second portion of our passage where we see Christ, the believer's fruitful boast. Christ, the believer's fruitful boast. Verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on the flesh is were necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for the progress and joy in the faith, for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Paul here talks about Christ magnified, and he says, either by life or death, to live or to die. And here's what he says in both cases, fruit. To live is fruitful for Christ, and to die is fruitful for Christ. That's what Paul says, and this is his fruitful boast. In fact, he will end this passage this morning by telling them, I would that you would abound in boasting in Christ. If you just look uh, back to your Bible, look up a few verses there to, is it nine? Yep. In verse nine, he uh, prayed that they would abound in something else. I pray that your love will abound in all knowledge and insight, and on and on it goes. We walk through that prayer, right? I want you to abound with, with wise, God-knowing, heart-changed love. I want you to abound in that. And then after this section, he's going to end it with, I want you to abound in boasting. I want you to abound in boasting in Christ. Because as you think of me, Philippians, I know you're worried. As you sent a delegation to check on me, I know you prayed. As, as you have considered my lot and you know the, the indecency and the, and the illegality uh, and the ignominy of all I've been through, I know you care. But don't worry. I want you to think about me and boast in Christ because that's what I'm doing. 
because everything I'm doing is magnifying Christ, Paul says. To live or to die. Four descriptions he gives about to live, two descriptions he gives about to die, and all six point to fruitfulness. First, he says to live, verse 21, to live is Christ. Well, that's fruitful. What does that mean, Paul? You didn't, you didn't give us any pronouns. You didn't give us any explanation. To live is Christ. That's like, that's, I mean, just understand, to put just a noun there and nothing else. Like, to live is like cow, right? To live, but, but it's Christ. So it works. Because Christ is, is Paul's everything. I mean, it's his motive. It's his goal. It's his resource. It's his hope. Or we could spend all day. In other words, Paul says, everything that I do, I just do for Christ. And the ability to do anything that I do is because of Christ. And when I fail and I don't do what I should do, I run to Christ. And as long as I still have breath, living is Christ, both by my success and my failure. And I prove that it is Christ who is great. To live is Christ. And then second 22, if I am to live on the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me to live is fruitful labor. Man, oh man, I read that verse. I go, Lord God, I would love to be able to say that of me. There's, there's a life verse to, to pray for, to shoot for, a goal. To live in the flesh is fruitful labor. And I just want every day, Lord, you might say, to bear fruit, whatever work you give me to do. Ephesians 2.10, God has prepared in advance good works for us to do so that we might walk in them. Lord, I want, I want to just be fruitful in whatever labor you give me for today. Maybe it's just being faithful with whatever my job is. Maybe it's just continuing in steadfastness. Maybe it's being unmoved, whatever it might be. If I stay I'll, I'll work and there will be fruit, Paul says. No, well, I don't know, Paul. You're a long way from the Philippians. How's this fruit going to happen? Well, we've already seen that answer. The entire Praetorian know that Paul is in prison for the name of Jesus Christ. And even some in the, in the official's household, the royal household, know about Christ. Fruitful labor because of what Paul has done. And then third, he says this in 24. Um, yet to remain on the flesh is more necessary for your sake. To live is more necessary for you. Um, if I didn't know the dude Paul very well, and I only know him a little bit from reading his stuff, like you do, I might think this guy has um, a serious uh, ego problem, right? If I live, it's better for you. Oh, but the Apostle Paul in his suffering in his prayer intercession, in his faithfulness and witness, in his diligence to discipline, and in his large-hearted love to shepherd, is, is not being an egomaniac when he says, for me to continue on in the flesh is more necessary for you. I know you guys are still infants. You're still young. You're still learning. Paul the Apostle says, it would be better for you if I stay. To live is Christ. To live is fruitful labor. To live is an opportunity to give our lives for others, to benefit them. No man lives unto himself. How much more is that true for a follower of Jesus Christ in the body, right? None of us live to ourselves. And we go through seasons, don't we? We go through hardships, and we wonder, why am I going through this? I don't see it. I don't know why. I don't understand. It doesn't make sense. I don't even, I don't even see the benefit. Maybe you and I will never know, but it may not be for us. It might be for the sake of somebody else, right? Fourth and finally, to live will be growth and satisfaction for these other believers. 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. By the way, I just want you to note the tension. He says here in 25, I know that I will remain and continue with you. You're like, Frank, I thought you said there was tension. Well, if you read 25 alone, there isn't any tension. I know I'll live and not die here. Uh, but then you get to chapter 2, and he says, but even if I am being poured out as a drink offering, <laughs> even if God is preparing me to die here in prison, so you have to take the totality of it together. The bottom line is, I think Paul is immensely optimistic 
that God is going to deliver him out of this scenario. But I think he is also fully aware that he could die. And he's fine with whatever the Lord may do. Here, though, what he says is his remaining and then continuing with them. In fact, in 26, expecting to come to them and see them again. What will all that do? To live will be for your progress and joy in the faith. Can you say that you are that for any other person? I, I, that's a tall order, but man, that's worth aspiring to. Or just for today, okay, I can't pull that off every day, but Lord, today, I pray that today, if I make it through the whole day, I will be for somebody else's joy in the faith and their progress in the faith. And that's Paul's focus, his fruitful focus and his boast in living for Christ. And here's what he says, I don't know what to prefer. And then a few verses later, he says, I'm hard-pressed to choose between the two, the living and the dying. Most of us would go, you know what? You're not very spiritual, Paul, because that's an easy choice for me. <laughs> Paul's like, no, man, both of them are good, and both are fruit. Notice Paul's selflessness. If I continue to live, that's more necessary for somebody else. If I continue to live, that's for the joy in the faith and the progress in the faith of somebody else. To live is fruit. How about to die? Well, to die is also fruit. 21. He gives only two descriptions here. To die is gain. Verse 21. I, I don't want to comment on that. To die is gain. And what a thing to say on our deathbed and throw our hands open and look through the veil and say, Lord, you receive me. Gain as I come home. That is the certainty of every child of God. That is the joyful expectation of every believer. I don't care how shamefully you live out your days. I, I, I don't care what cloud you might feel you exist under, ways you feel like you may have cursed yourself or been cursed by circumstances, you die and you say, gain if you know Christ. And then 23, he gives the other description. I'm hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, in other words, to die, for that is very much better. Um, I love the different translations of the end of verse 23 because the English authors, the English translators are wrestling with what Paul does that is purposely messy. He uses three words that mean almost the exact same thing and just piles them up all on top of each other. He, he doesn't say to die would be better. He doesn't say to die would be much more better. He says to die would be way much more better by far. That's kind of what he says at the end of verse 23. I, I love that because I regularly say this around our house, our house. I'll say, oh, well, hey, we should do this because that would be more better, just to see if people are awake and paying attention. At this point, they're like, blah, blah, dad jokes, whatever. you know. Um, and then if I'm not getting any response, I'll usually say, in fact, this would be way more better. I literally didn't know until this week that that's biblical. I'm excited about that. Paul says, no, no, notice the restraint in 21, to die is gain. Notice the effusiveness in verse 23, way much more, better by far. Because for the believer, death is a benefit that nothing else can surpass. Why? Because you're finally rid of the brokenness of this life, of the corruption of this body, of the temptation of your spirit, of, of the ruts and the practices that in your sin you've created for yourself. All of that is a distant memory if you're a believer. What a benefit. Because to die is much better by far because you get Christ in his unfettered, unmediated form, right? We see now in a glass darkly, but then face to face. No more veil. We get a person and, and, and we get the provision of the Spirit filling us up in every way. No lack, no need, no fear, no want, 
No worry. Now that, that you know if you know Christ. But there's another benefit, another way in which I think in this passage, Paul is also saying, for me to die is way much more better by far. And it's this. His death is also a benefit. It's also fruitful because it will be a witness. See, that's what Paul's been wanting the whole time, right? If I live, Lord, just keep me unashamed and bold and magnify Christ. And Lord, if I die, magnify Christ. And he says, and if I die, then everybody will know. Just as all the praetorian and the people in the governor's household know that these chains are because of Jesus. And not because I, I'm a murderer or a thief or I've done anything else. Just because of Jesus. And if I die, you know what they'll know? They'll know I died for one and only one reason, because of Jesus. You say, yeah, but sometimes the government lies. And they'll slander people before they kill them, right? Oh, you better believe it. You're, you're so surprised by that. Don't matter. It is no shame to live for Christ. And it is no loss to die for Christ. That's what Paul says. It is no shame to live for Christ. And, and, and I'm not in charge of who the audience is. But there is no shame to live for Christ. Brother, sister, this week, I, I don't know what your scenario is. You don't know mine. But I can guarantee this for both of us. It is no shame to live for Christ. And it is no loss to sacrifice, to lose, to suffer. And even if necessary, it is no loss to die for Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ, then for you, death is not a benefit. Everything that we've said positively, would you please flip it upside down 180 degrees and to the same degree, it is negative. Because you will face your judge, your creator, your master, your maker who you've spurned and you will be judged for all eternity. And you can figure out the opposite of way much more better by far. Because death will be the exact opposite of anything like that. It'll be worse than anything you've ever known apart from Christ. Friend, if you're here this morning apart from Christ, please come and make peace with him. Because he holds out to you grace. He holds out to you freedom from shame. He holds out to you to wash your feet and make you his son or his daughter. And then to give you his spirit, his supply, his rich provision in every way. There is no other hope. There simply is not. But he is enough. No matter what the world may think today. No matter what your friends or your family may think or what they might be doing this week. It is no shame to live for Christ. It is no loss to die in Christ. Lastly, I'll just return to what I mentioned before in verse 26, where Paul ends is the believer's surpassing boast, his fruitful boast, whether I live or die, Christ is magnified. I'm going to translate verse 26 that I think the way the Greek does. Um, let me give you what it says in the NAS, so that your proud confidence in me, that's what I disagree with. Other translations will say it differently, and it's difficult because, again, Paul does Paul stuff, and he piles up prepositions. You're trying to figure out what modifies what. Proud confidence is the word boast, brag. Your boast in me may abound in Christ Jesus. I think this is the right uh, way to say it. So that your boast in Christ Jesus might abound because of me. It's just a different ordering of the words, but it flips, it flips the foundation for their boast. They're still related. Understand for the Philippians how important it is to be able to not be ashamed of Paul. Why? Because he's the one who taught him the gospel. He's the one who suffered. He's the one who's gone before them. He's the one who's, who's raised them up from infants. And now if they're ashamed of everything he goes through, that's going to bleed over into their understanding of fallen Christ, right? Paul says, you know what I want you to do? I want you to brag. In fact, I want your bragging to abound in Christ, but because of me. And so when you think of me in prison and uh, they say, hey, Bartholomew, uh, you're not coming around the synagogue anymore. I heard you're falling, uh, 
that, that teaching of the Nazarene because of that Paul guy. Hey, I heard they might kill him next week. How's, a, how's your faith going? How's that working for you? Huh? Ever had anybody ask you that? Just straight up. Oh, yeah, so how's that working for you? Well, he wants the Philippians to be able to say, really, really, really well, as a matter of fact. <laughs> and they might kill me too, but it is really, really, really going well. Let me tell you about my boast in the Lord Jesus Christ who saved me from sin, who's given me hope, who's made me his child. That's what Paul wants for them. And that is the surpassing boast of every believer. To magnify Christ is Paul's purpose, whether by life or death. These are words that I, I just, I feel so insufficient to do justice to, right? And you understand that this morning. These are those kinds of epic words that just, we would hang as a banner over our life and we will grow in all of our days. And, and the Lord helping us, we would come to the end of our life and say, yeah, I understand that better. That for me is sweeter. These, these realities are truer of me today than, than they ever have been. May, it's, may it be so, whether we live or, or die. Stand with me and let's um, ask for God's help in that in prayer. Gracious God, our Father, we can't control the number of our days. And Lord, I, we can't even fully control the last words that we would say. Um, but we, we put all that in your hands because none of that really matters. The audience, uh, the writing of our story, um, these things can, can be done imperfectly. But Lord, um, our lives in your hands, that's perfect. And our trust in, in you, Lord, your spirit helping us, we ask for it, make that perfect. And this week, Lord, might we have a glimpse of Paul's um, steadying focus and, and might our lips speak of the glorious boast. And may our lives be fruitful that we might live for you. Thank you for the example of Paul, your son. And thank you for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was his hope and Holy Spirit. Come and supply the needs of your people in every way so that we might walk more like this this week. This is what we ask in Christ's name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us this week.